Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List, uh, back at you today. Uh, we're going to take our uh, first uh, look at the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. Again, that's a place that you can hit us up with any uh, studies you want us to read, any uh, jokes you want us to, uh, to say on air, or in this case, a sponsorship opportunity. Uh, so we're always taking those. Uh, today is from the IFMOP. You can find them on, at uh, their Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash I just made this up. And uh, so we today are uh, going to hear from them. They uh, wanted me to do their jingle. Um, to, uh, and so I wrote a jingle for them for uh, the uh, uh, Primary Care Podcast. Uh, they are an anti-masking group. Uh, who uh, have used uh, very detailed research uh, to list all the reasons why uh, you should uh, not be wearing masks. Um, and uh, yeah, let's get into it. Masks are bad, masks are dumb. Wearing them makes all your organs go numb. Masks kill you and your family too. They turn your spleen rotten and your pancreas blue. How do we know this? Give our research a look. Read our blogs and Tumblr and don't forget our Facebook. Thank you, idiots for murdering old people, for supporting the Primary Care Podcast. And uh, let's hit up. Start the podcast, Bob. Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, hey! everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List, uh, hitting you up with another episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, lung cancer screening. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're going to go uh, the newest guideline, uh, just released not too long ago. Uh, probably, what, two weeks ago now? Eh, I'm too lazy to go back and look at the date. July 7th? Yeah, yeah, that's about, that's about 10 days from when I'm recording this. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the, the changes. Uh, specifically, lung cancer screening. Um, this is probably one of the least least followed uh, cancer screening guidelines. Uh, our organization um, tracks um, how often we're doing mammograms, pap smears, uh, colonoscopies. Uh, we don't track uh, PSA tests. Um, that is one thing that, but again, PSAs um, and, and prostate cancer screening testing, uh, a little bit of probably, probably the least effective of all the prostate, of all the cancer screens. We'll talk a little about the numbers here in a little bit, but uh you know, they this this uh, the USPFTF came out with a draft recommendation to expand lung cancer screening. So we're going to look at this a little bit. Um, the newest guideline says adults age 50, so make it easy, right? Age 50 to 80 with a 20 pack year history of smoking, who either currently smoke or have quit in the past 15 years, should be screened every year with low dose CT scan, according to the new recommendation, which is grade B. So the old guidelines, which are now six years old, man, that does not seem like that long ago, uh, had a, uh, a guideline recommending starting at age 55 and for those with a 30-pack year history or more. So we're going to dramatically increase the number of people screened. Um, the article that I read on this uh, talks about the screening population would expand by 86%. So a whole lot more people now. Uh, you're going to lower the rage, lower the rage, lower the age, start at age 50, and then drop the amount of 
uh, packs smoking to 20. And again, but these are not really former smokers. These are quit in the last 15 years or currently smoke. Um, so why is this the case? Well, they used some modeling, not, not clinical data, but modeling data to change their recommendation. Now, I think it's very important because we had the same exact thing happen just about a year or more ago about uh, colon cancer screening, right? Colon cancer screening has been started at age 50. If you're doing a colonoscopy every 10 years, if normal, Colgard three years, et cetera, we're not going to go into that now. But the, the modeling data showed that there is theoretically, because the age of newly diagnosed colon cancers is starting earlier and earlier, that the modeling data predicted that starting at age 45 would be the best uh, the, the best interval to start at instead of age 50 waiting because you're going to miss X percent are going to be early colon cancer. So the modeling data, not necessarily any clinical studies, not necessarily any, um, any big cohorts, really looked at, though, about starting at age 45. And, and again, there's probably some validity to that, just hasn't really panned out in the data. With the lung cancer screening, again, this is not based on any new clinical trial data necessarily. Uh, lung cancer screening is based in, in, in trial data, and the trial data is pretty good, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but really, the bigger reason why they're changing is because of this modeling data. And it's important to realize that when we talk about lung cancer screening, right, the biggest worry is, well, two concerns, really. Number one is false positives, right? And a lot has been published about the range of false positive rates. So when the USPFTF looked at all the studies, 27 publications on lung cancer screening have come out that report false positive rates, right? Or give you enough information that can that you can calculate the false positive rates on. So if you look in, uh, I'm going through the 567-page document that USPFTF has for their evidence to support these findings. And they, the crazy part about the false positives is that in the study, the range of false positives in these 27 studies ranges from 7.9% to 49% in your initial baseline screening. And so I remember when when lung cancer screening was first was first pitched of like, hey, we should be doing low dose CT scan to to screen lung cancer. That the biggest 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 uh, gripe about all the data was that the incredible amount of overdiagnosis, the or not even overdiagnosis of small cancers that don't matter, but the incredible rates of false positives that are going to pop up on CT scan and require biopsy, require intervention to make sure that they're not lung cancer, right? After the initial baseline screen, the false positive rates in these studies range from 0.6 to 28.6%, okay, in the individual instance of screen rounds, right? And for older people, rates are higher. Because, again, you're going to have more small little nodules that aren't cancer, but, you know, ding positive on your initial scan, and so you have to follow up, right? So when you just rule out all the studies that have looked at low-dose CT scans, and, and, uh, but if you just look at, like, the big trials, right, uh, rates range from 7 to 26% for the initial screen and then 0.6 to 27% for follow-up screening. So I, I think that I, I think that you can't ignore the fact that when you're educating people on 
lung cancer screens, the pros and cons, there could be a very high chance that uh, you know a quarter of your patients at minimum, at least a quarter, at least one out of four, are going to probably have a false positive on their initial screen, if not up to 49%. So you have to warn patients that false positive rates are high. Okay. The other fear is radiation-induced cancer, right? Because we're doing low-dose CT scans. Now, this, you know, when you look at actually the harms and there's a harms uh, handout, don't worry, it's only 171 pages, but they have some really good graphs. They have some really good tables. And the amount of harm per year with the radiation uh, in the models are all pretty low. And the, the amount of cancers induced per year with radiation, uh, pretty low, pretty low. Again, we're talking about usually older patients. Um, these are, you know, former smokers, heavy smokers, older patients. And the amount of time it takes to produce a cancer induced by a CT scan um, and, and the follow-up and the, and the repeat CT scans. And again, the dose of radiation is lower. These are low-dose CT scans. Is, is a lot less than people, I think, are initially concerned about. So while, while this is a legitimate fear and worry, the, the numbers of radiation-induced uh, cancers actually actually a lot lower than you'd expect. Um, I'm scrolling through right now to find the numbers, um, and uh, this is really good radio. This is a good, really good podcast. Um, uh, radiation-related lung cancer deaths. Um, yep, so lung cancers induced by radiation in 100,000 patients would be about 11 patients. So again, a very, 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 very small subset of patients would be would be harmed, would ultimately be killed by radiation-induced lung cancer deaths. Um, overdiagnosis, we talked about, again, low per 100,000 or uh, per percent-wise, we're talking about 1% compared to all lung cancer cases, where lung cancer, again, is usually pretty aggressive. So if you find lung cancer, it's, it's unlikely, unlike prostate cancer and breast cancer, where especially in older people, you do the cancer screening, you find a cancer, but they're going to die of something else. So you really technically overdiagnosed a, a, a low grades, uh, very early cancer that they're not going to die from. In lung cancer, only 1.5% of, of overdiagnosis, uh, lung cancers would be considered overdiagnosis. Um, so, you know, 99% plus, uh, 98%, 99% of lung cancers found in lung cancer screening are, are, are useful to find, right? So you're having very few cases of overdiagnosis. Um, what I think, though, the big the big thing you have to tell your patients out, and so I'm going to read this data right here. These are all their models, right? And in these trials per 100,000 people, um, or sorry, this is per cohort, right? So these are the people in, this is if you were born in 1960, um, if, we, if we screened everybody in 1960 who had a 20-pack year history of smoking um, and because they met the age criteria, right, um, there would be... Uh, a couple of different models, depends on when we start, et cetera. But we would do about 175,000 low-dose low CT scans, so a lot of testing, right, to test everybody if we're doing them every single year. Um, a, a lot of scans, you know, almost 200,000 scans total. But the average lung cancer, low-dose CT screens per person in the model would be somewhere between 7 to 12, right? So these are you're going to have to follow these people for quite some time uh, even in the models and in the studies, um, they didn't go out that far. They did, you know, three. They did three CT scans um, and then, you know, looked for, for looked for improvement. Some did four. Some had earlier. Some had longer follow up. Some did them every two years, etc. 
But it's a lot of the trial data does not look at doing 12 years of annual lung cancer screens and what that does. But every every time that we go out, the, the more and more we test, the longer we test people and the more we screen them, the more lung cancers we're going to find because these are high-risk people. So the, the key thing is if you're going to start these lung cancer screenings, the important thing is to follow up and to keep doing them because there's added value and there's added benefit. Um, the test becomes... Again, when you rule out those false positives, the test becomes a, a better and better test every single year. Um, they here in this in this table, um, they talk about the average false positives per person screened between one to one point six. So per person screened, which you know, let's say that's a hundred thousand, whatever. Let's say that that's you know however many people. It doesn't even matter how many people because this is per person. You are going to get on average a false positive for every single person, for every single person, at least, you know, an average of one per person to 1.5 per person. That's crazy. I mean, so you really, really, really have to talk about false positives because statistically it's, if you keep people and you do them annually, right? Um, you are absolutely going to, according to the models, going to have a false positive per person on average. So again, really important that you talk about that. Um, the number needed to screen though, to prevent one death, According to the models, doing it annually, starting at age 50, going to age 80, doing it yearly, the number needed to screen is about somewhere between 30 to 40, which is an incredibly good number, right? An incredibly good number. Uh, breast cancer screening is not that good. Colon cancer screening is not that good. Um, prostate cancer is ungodly terrible comparatively. So the number needed to screen, according to the models, between 30 and 40. All right, 38 to 42. Okay, uh, so if you look at their if you look at their kind of graphical chart things. So again, if you believe the models, which there's no reason not to believe the models. Now, why shouldn't we believe the models though? Not that the data is wrong, not that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, expect this to happen, but people don't follow up. Uh, even with colon cancer screens, right? Um, not everybody follows through. Uh, some people have an initial one at 50. Some people don't get screened until 55. Some people never get it until they're like 65. And they're like, oh, hey, by the way, should I get a colon cancer colonoscopy? Yeah, we've been asking you to do it every single year. you know. And finally, somebody you know got colon cancer, and so then you change your mind. Uh, with the models, you're assuming that people are following up every year, and you're doing them at a good expert level quality. So if you're practicing family medicine or internal medicine in a small town, and your organization, your radiologist, are you know either the the rad tech is not running the screen quite right. Uh, maybe your technology, maybe your CT scans are not. Uh, maybe they're old. Maybe they don't have the best quality. Maybe your radiologist isn't as comfortable reading uh, lung cancer screenings. Um, you're going to have uh, not as good outcomes, right? You're going to have more false positives. You're going to be missing more cancers. You're going to be having uh, a higher number needed to screen to save a life. If you're in an expert facility or in a big city and you can rely on, you know, a, a local expert or major university hospital that does a ton of these things and has a very rigorous lung cancer screening program, then lung cancer screening is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly valuable tool. So I know some people that are our listeners are in rural communities and they have, you know, a locums radiologist or a radiologist they share. Or they use kind of night, night rads or one of the overseeing services do a lot of their radiology stuff for, to decrease costs because they're a small, poor rural clinic. Your data is not going to be as good, and your lung cancer screens are not going to be as good. And especially if you already have trouble having people follow with follow-ups, um, you know, some of I'm from small town uh, Midwest, and you know, a lot of those farmers, uh, 
they, they do a, a screen once and then you don't see them again in clinic for like 16 years, right? Uh, and so, you know, if people aren't following up, your data is not going to be as good. Lung cancer screens are not going to be as consistent. Uh, so when I hear uh, lung cancer screening experts, either in different podcasts or in different articles, talk about laud how good lung cancer screening could be, uh, I just think, you know, you live in an ivory tower and so, of course, you're biased. So there's a lot of downsides to lung cancer screening, a lot of false positives, uh, a lot of follow-up required, a lot of potential radiation. Um, I think the radiation, uh, the the data, at least on the radiation exposures, has uh, I've felt a lot better about it, especially about reading through these studies that they have on here. I, I think that when we look at um, the overall lung cancer screening number needed to screen that they have in this data, I think it's a little bit overplayed. I, I think it's a little overestimated because, again, they're using a model. And we all know in the real world we do not get a perfect model. But take away that the guidelines have changed. They've expanded who can screen. For your highest risk people, especially if they've never been screened, getting them in an annual screening protocol, especially with a high-quality lung cancer screening program, if that's in your area, um, has a really, really low number needed to screen to get some value. Uh, you have to warn them about overdiagnosis. You have to warn them about potential of an unnecessary biopsy or unnecessary follow-ups, um, about the high, high chance of a false positive, especially in the initial screen. But again, I think that uh, we, at least in my organization and around the country, do a really poor job about lung cancer screenings. It's one of the more neglected lung uh, cancer screenings. And I think that the data really supports that it's actually a really it could be and potentially can be a very high-quality lung cancer, uh, cancer screening program. But again, that's in a perfect world. So you're gonna, I know I'm going to get the question, and so I'll say it right now. Um, the number needed to screen in a lot of the trials, like in real-world data, like screening every other year or with limited follow-up in a, you know, in, in, with real patients not using a model with all the faults that real patients have, uh, but in a real-case scenario, the number needed to screen, again, I'm just going to pull a couple from PubMed here, uh, 303. Right. That's a lot different than 40. Right. That's a lot different than 38 or 42. Right. Another one is 330. Right. So that that number becomes a lot less intriguing than the 38 to 42. But again, if you if you can do it right, if you can get people to follow up, uh, potentially it's a it's a good system. And again, lung cancer screening in general and cancer screenings in general, same type of process uh, issues with numbers and studies versus in models. Right. Because we're not perfect and, and patients aren't perfect with follow up either. How does that compare to other cancers, you might ask, like breast, colon, and prostate? Again, it really depends on the study that you read, uh, the cohorts that they use, the follow-up that they use, the protocols that they use, and what data they ultimately look at. Uh, from 2012, just a quick couple of PubMed searches, uh, breast cancer, it depends on the age of when you screen. Uh, so screening patients uh, annually between the ages of 50 and 59 is a number needed to screen of 351. Uh, for women between the ages of 60 and 69 is 233. Um, between the ages of 40 and 49 is 746. And again, we're talking about this is 2012 data, so uh, I'm sure there's more up-to-date data. I'm not going to uh, go digging for everything incredibly detailed here. Uh, what about for colon cancer? Again, a, a quick PubMed search uh, that I pulled up talks about a number needed to screen about 370, uh, 377, for example. So um, I think that when we look at overall, gosh, what can uh, what can we do? Oh, pro and by the way, prostate cancer uh, not very good either um, in the several hundreds uh, as well. So again, when we look at when we look at cancer screens. 
there's always going to be the models about what is what does it look like in a perfect world and what could it look like with uh, perfect screening and with experts doing it, and then what the real world data looks like. But again, I think the the answer is lung cancer screening is something that uh, as a nation, as a as a practice group, gets done less commonly compared to some of the other. Uh, cancer screenings. There's not a uh, there's not a, 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 pr- a breast cancer month. Uh, there's not sorry. There's not a lung cancer month. There's not a lung cancer screening month where the NFL football players wear uh, I don't know what color lung cancer would be black. I don't know. I don't know. And they're not wearing pink cleats, anything like that. There's no Susan G. Broman lung cancer for the cure, right? Um, and so lung cancer screening is one of those things that I think. I think does have some of the same value and even in some cases looks even better than some cancer screening protocols and yet gets done a lot less likely. Uh, it gets gets a little bit less, more of a bad rap because of the high fall rates of false positives. But again, uh, all cancer screens have their own issues. So again, uh, hopefully this was helpful. Hopefully this review of lung cancer screening, the change in the data, again, starting at age 50 and now with a 20-pack year history, no longer 55 and 30. Uh, and uh, again, uh, keep uh, keep it, uh, uh, you don't have to stay up all night to stay up to date. This has been Dr. Mark List with Primary Care Podcast. Again, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, let me know anything at primarycarepod.gmail.com if you have any questions or concerns. And with that, we will sign off and have a great day.